One is where we'll be to begin this morning. First Timothy chapter number one. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you are the unchanging, eternal God, the God who is, whose existence is in himself. And thank you that you have always had a people and that you are doing a great work in the world. And we pray that we would have properly a proper sense of where, where our spiritual ancestors have been. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First uh, Timothy 1.5, and just uh, welcome this morning for those of you who may not be familiar with what we're doing. I'm doing a Sunday school series I'm calling Religious Influences um, in America, which has been primarily and will for the next couple of weeks be more, very much more historical than anything else, although it is a history of major religious movements. Um, and uh, <clears throat> if you like, some people like to use the word impulses uh, <clears throat> of uh, how the Lord has moved. And, and again, my, my primary point is this, folks, is that right? we all have a Bible and we've all had the same Bible. Um, <clears throat> From the completion of the New Testament, God's people have had the same Bible. Um, But the way we deal with it and the positions that we draw from it have not all been the same. And a lot of that has to do with other factors and other influences. And there are some people who like to believe that they are immune to those, uh, but they are not. And and today, this morning, we're going to really kind of talk about one of the most significant factors that shapes the way people have come and approached the Bible. We're going to begin to talk about that. So verse number 5 in 1 Timothy 1. Now the end of the commandment, right? Where is God going with all that he says to us and all that he demands of us? Now, the end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Um, One of the things, and Baptists are going to get mentioned this morning, um, one of the things I intend to do is kind of backtrack a little bit when we get towards the end and talk a little bit more about just the Baptist part of some of these things specifically. But Baptists have historically, and I will mention this again in the lesson, um, have advocated strongly for individual conscience in, in regarding the practice of religion. And I'll give you some quotes about that. So 
so as we turn our attention again this morning, not so much to, to Bible and theology, but to history, let me just make a comment here about resources. Much, but not all, of what I'm going to say this morning comes from one book. It is called The Democratization of American Christianity. <clears throat> It was written by a man by the name of Nathan Hatch. It's published by Yale University Press. And you can buy the Kindle version for about 15 bucks. <clears throat> and if you have any interest in American religious history, it's really probably an essential for reading American religious history. I think that you can probably get the gist of where we're going to go this morning from the title of the book, The Democratization of American Christianity. Um, so we had begun in the colonial era, we went back a little bit into England, and we talked a little bit about the English Reformation and the way that it shaped England into being a Protestant nation, and we care about that because the people who really settled in America, right, and France and Spain and, and other, Holland had settlers, you know, about New York, Sweden had settlers, that's New Jersey, um, but primarily it was England, France, and Spain who did the, the heavy lifting in colonizing the New World. But it was really the English who truly settled it in the sense of having families come over, of raising their families here, of identifying themselves as Englishmen living in a different world. And so America then, <clears throat> the colonies, developed a distinctly Protestant flavor and dimension, and not at all a Roman Catholic dimension, which that would have had Spain and France kind of followed the similar trajectory with a view to colonization, but they, of course, did not. And so we talked about the early colonial period and the distinction between the Puritans and the Pilgrims and their two different views of the world and of the church and Christianity. Um, and, of course, their orientation was to the established church, the Church of England. And the Puritans were willing to be Anglican, provided it would not be Roman Catholic, and the pilgrims did not want it all to be Anglican. They wanted to be complete separatists. And so you had those two visions, but the Puritan vision really dominated. And so New England, for the most part, went away from being established as Church of England to being established as Congregational. And uh, those became the authorized uh, churches. And then in the early 1700s, God brought about the first Great Awakening. And again, <clears throat> these re religious revivals pose always, and if you just remember the most recent Awakening in America, the Asbury Revival of, what, a year, year and a half ago. Um, <clears throat> they're always controversial. They're always viewed, on the one hand, through religious eyes, what God is doing, and through secular eyes, what is going on in the culture. Um, there's always disagreements about what exactly is happening. Is it a true work of God phenomenon? Is it a work of Satan phenomenon? Is it just simply a cultural phenomenon? Can you make the distinction? All of those things play into every revival, however it is called. <clears throat> um, but um, so in the early 1700s, um, <clears throat> we begin to see this great awakening. Um, 
at the time that it broke out, right, colonial religion was characterized by primarily being established churches. Most colonies had a one singular, recognized, legitimate, tax-supported church. And within that colony, you might have freedom to not be a part of that church, but your taxes were still spent funding that church, and you might be denied certain rights like voting or holding public office, uh, depending upon how the colony uh, operated. Um, churches were also governed exclusively by professionally trained clergy, which maybe sounds like a terrible way to put it, but these were men, there was a specific trajectory that young men who wanted to go into the ministry had to follow. And so they went to colleges and they went to seminaries and then they studied and as apprentices and then eventually they would become ordained ministers in their own right. And this was the only pathway to becoming a pastor was to follow the established trajectory, whatever was set by the denomination to which you beheld. Congregational had, had their view, and Harvard was, of course, established 1636 as a training ground for congregational pastors so that we can get our colonial ministers from colonial men and not have to rely upon English men to be colonial pastors. Uh, that was part of it. Um, and then because of the extensive training they received and because of the establishment of churches, these were invariably highly regarded people in the community. Very often, they were the only people that had anything resembling a college degree. They were the only people, and, and part of the college in those days was learning to be, you know, to, to, to do pastoral work in colonial America, you were going to learn to read and speak Hebrew, and you were going to learn to read and speak Greek, and you were going to learn to read and speak Latin, and very often your textbooks were in Latin, and your courses were taught in Latin, and we all know that Jonathan Edwards, when he graduated from college at the ripe age of 17, gave his valedictory address in Latin, not to show off, but because Latin was the language of education. So you can just you can just see folks in a in a country in which the vast majority of people, right? No insult. But the vast majority of people had little to no education. Many people could not read. Many people's reading was rudimentary. They were they were just very uneducated people. And then you have their ministers who can converse in Greek and Latin. Now, that, not just them, right? If you go back and read the correspondence, for instance, between, John, or between um, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who were not ministers, but were parting of our founding father aristocracy, these were men who could read those foreign languages. They talked to each other in their personal communication. They were, they were good friends for many years and then had a falling out over politics and then were reunited towards the end of their lives. And, you know, it's really kind of a fascinating story. And they both died on July 4th, 1826. So it's kind of an interesting dimension to that in, in any event. So you have an established church structure 
and a very hierarchical established clergy structure. And this is the way religion is conducted. So that, right, I'm just giving it as an illustration. I will tell you what the Bible says. And I will tell you what you believe about what the Bible says. And we who are in charge, which would generally be a collection of pastors, we will tell you what churches will do. And we will draw these lines. And you will come. And you have to come. And you will submit yourself to that. But you will not ask much in the way of questions. And you will not conduct any kind of revolt. And you most certainly will not be welcome to establish your own kind of religion. Or you will do that at your peril. And so we find people driven from colonies and prosecuted for these kinds of heretical religious practices. And of course they had gotten most of that from England, which existed in a very distinctly hierarchical structure. You had the nobility and you had the common people and there were just clear lines drawn and everybody knew their place. And that was kind of the way the world went. And then the Great Awakening broke out. And we've talked about this. The, the, there are about two and a half million Americans. Estimates, we don't really know, but estimates are that somewhere in the vicinity of 10%, 250,000 of them made professions of faith. Some estimates are that somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people in New England alone made professions of faith, so there was a great spiritual impact. So it begins in this very regimented, religious-structured world that was, and I'm going to use the word again, and I'm going to make my standard disclaimer, was doctrinally Calvinistic, and it absolutely was. But folks, one of the things we're just going to have to wrestle through when we talk about our religious heritage historically is that to be Calvinist or to be its polar opposite Arminian is not just a doctrinal position, it, it impacted the entire way you viewed Christianity and religion in church. And <clears throat> so there's a lot more to it than the way we tend to treat it. You're a Calvinist or you just don't think God wants to save people. <clears throat> it, is, it is much more involved than that. <clears throat> The Great Awakening spread then down through virtually all of the colonies over the course of the next 50 to 40 to 50 years. Um, <clears throat> and one of the consequences of the Great Awakening was that it didn't really change the differences that people held religiously, Calvinism and Arminianism, as much as it did help to put an end to the hostility that existed between those differences. So that you might be a Presbyterian who would be a Calvinist and you might be a Methodist who would be a complete Arminian and we would disagree completely but we're not going to try and kill each other over that any longer. So it brings a, not necessarily a unity of position but certainly a unifying calmness to some of the conflict. But the Great Awakening did serve to create a great division between the established churches and what are known as the populist movement churches. And the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening, will be the first in kind of this wave of populist movements 
in which the established churches and the established mentalities are challenged by the American people. Jonathan Edwards, of course, wrote extensively about the characteristics of a religion because there was much emotionalism that attended to these things. And, I mean, you know, for instance, if I may jump ahead 100 years, you've all heard of the Shakers. You know what Shaker furniture is. And the Shakers were called Shakers because they shook. And this was part of their argument, was that when God did a work, you were physically impacted. And Jonathan Edwards said, well, let's put that to a Bible test and see if it has to be so. And we've had, in recent days, claims of revivals in which people laughed. And in the Second Great Awakening, people barked like a dog. So, right, if we, just, if we just started barking during the church service this morning and somebody walked in and said, what's happening? And we said, we're having a revival. See, you're already laughing. John, Jonathan, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards was not laughing. He was furiously writing going, what, what should a real revival look like? And by the way, folks, that is not an academic question. I've already mentioned this. When we get into the Second Great Awakening, on this date, February 18th, 2024, we are still living with issues, not, not fights, but we are still doing things that reflect the impact of the Second Great Awakening, which ended in about 1850. We are still living with the legacy of the Second Great Awakening. So these things have ongoing dimensions and con- uh, consequences to them. And then, of course, into that, right, kind of on the heels and the Great Awakening, one of the things that it did was tend to unify Americans as thinking of themselves as Americans, which they were already doing in many ways. And so we we have the American Revolution or the War for Independence. I'm not going to get into that fight this morning. It began about 1775, ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, We know, of course, we celebrate the 4th of July, that it brought about political independence from England. We talk much less about the way it brought about cultural independence from England. We were now going to begin to undertake in earnest a truly American identity. Here's the way Hatch puts it. Above all, the revolution dramatically expanded the circle of people who considered themselves capable of thinking for themselves about issues of freedom, equality, sovereignty, and representation, respect for authority, tradition, station, and education eroded. So, I mean, you can just kind of, you can, right, it's not a stretch, folks, to see how people are thinking We were able to figure out for ourselves that we shouldn't be a part of England, and we were able to take a stand for ourselves that we shouldn't be a part of England, and we won our independence from England, and now I don't need no minister telling me what to do. I don't, I don't, I, I can take care of myself. And so the democratization of American Christianity 
begins to bloom. After the American Revolution, or the War for Independence, whatever your preference is, westward expansion <clears throat> exploded. And if you recall your high school history, after the Seven Year War, or the French and Indian War, depending upon how you want to call that, <clears throat> one of the things that England did was ban the colonists from expanding over the Appalachian Mountains. This was part of the treaty that they made with France. The Seven Years' War was a war between England and France over the territory of pretty much Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and <clears throat> in the Detroit area. And so they, they, they fought, <clears throat> and part of the treaty was that Americans wouldn't be allowed to move west, but Americans were very much interested in moving west, and when we finally won our independence from England, that began the great massive westward expansion, and, and west then to them was to go to Tennessee, or to go to Kentucky, or as we will take one particular Sunday school lesson and deal with, to move to western New York. Rochester, New York, in the span of 18 years, goes from having nobody to having 18,000 inhabitants. Or 10,000 inhabitants. In 18 years, it just blooms out of nothing. Western New York, westward expansion. <clears throat> and then in 1803, uh, Jefferson signed the deal to purchase the Louisiana Territory, and Americans want to explore all of that. And so America post-World post Revolutionary War is expanding both geographically and in population. In 1775, when the revolution broke out, England's population was about double America's. We had two and a half million people, England had five million. By 1845, England has 15 million people and America has 20 million. And the great waves of immigration have not yet even begun. That is almost all the result of a very high birth rate and not only a high birth rate, but a very high survivor rate, survival rate among the children. <clears throat> and so the very identity of the country is beginning to shift. What is an American? What is an American? And American now is, again, always increasing in its own identity, not very English. Again, let me, let me cite Hatch. The very structures of society were undergoing a democratic winnowing. Political convulsions seemed cataclysmic. The cement of an ordered society seemed to be dissolving. People confronted new kinds of issues, common folk not respecting their betters, organized factions speaking and writing against civil authority, the uncoupling of church and state, and the abandonment of settled communities in droves by people seeking a stake in the back country. And one historian noted that in the period 1780, post-revolution, to 1830, the only thing in America that competed with Christianity was the desire for land. People wanted their own land. Right, we, still, we still live with the vestiges of that, folks. Right? For, many, for many of us, sitting right here in the auditorium of Westwood Heights, Baptist Church, the epitome of American ideal existence is to have several acres of land. That's what we'd like. We'd like some land. This is our, this is our ancestry. We want land. 
Two denominations in particular thrived as America began its westward movement. And when it began to move west into western New York and into Kentucky and into Tennessee, right? It left the old established traditions and denominations and hierarchies. It left them behind. And it brought a new democratic ideal into the people that they would carry over into their religious practices. And the two denominations that capitalized most on this were the Methodists and the Baptists. Were the Methodists and the Baptists. And of course, Methodist is a name given to John and Charles Wesley. Um, It was not really a name that they chose for themselves, but they were noted for their regimented religious practices and their methodical approach to Christianity, and they became known, of course, as Methodism. Methodism is way more than Baptist is. Methodism has a life and identity and an existence in England all unto itself. And while the Great Awakening is going on in America, what we call the First Great Awakening, a revival of similar magnitude is happening in England called the Great Evangelical Awakening. And that's what the Wesley brothers were involved in. Methodism in England, this should come as no surprise, reflected very much the ideals and the structure of English culture. If you're familiar at all with Methodism, you know that Methodism employs an Episcopal form of government. They have bishops. They have a hierarchy of structure They have somebody who is in charge of churches and pastors, a group of churches and pastors. That was a part of Methodism. When John John Wesley died in 1791, the leading Methodist in England then became a man by the name of Jabez Bunting. And here's what Jabez Bunting said. He is an Englishman who is a leader in the English Methodist movement, and here is what he says about Methodism in England. Methodists hate democracy like they hate sin. So they want to bring that hierarchy of religious structure over the Methodist church. We will embrace Methodist doctrine, which is, you know, in Methodism, like everything else, splinters into a variety of ways, but Methodism is primarily identified as having holiness elements. John Wesley believed you could reach a place of being sinless or pretty much sinless. It was distinctly Arminian, right? Almost invariably, when you find somebody who believes that you can achieve sinless perfection, they will also believe you can lose salvation if you don't keep it up. So you have that as part of the dimension and this, this all <clears throat> went together. In America, Methodism took exactly the opposite direction. Methodism in America was, from its beginning, very much a populist church movement. And in fact, one of the leading Methodists in America was a man by the name of Lorenzo Dow. And one of his peers said of Lorenzo Dow, neither his hair nor his beard had ever seen a comb. And so in New England, right, you have religious leaders in New England arguing 
in support of an established clergy. Churches should be authorized by the government. If you want to be a minister, you should follow the trajectory that we have always followed. Go to college, get the training, become an assistant, study under a man, get licensed, get ordained, and then maybe you can have a pulpit someday and be a religious leader in your own right. Here's Lorenzo Dow. Indulge me, I'm going to spell some of his words for you. And those of you who are English geeks, you may want to plug your ears. Lorenzo Dow. This is his response. What I insist upon my brethren and sisters is this. Larnin, L-A-R-N-I-N, isn't religion and edication, E-D-D-I-C-A-T-I-O-N, don't give a man the power of the Spirit. Now, let me just see, folks, right? Put yourself to a little bit of a test and without getting all caught up in the fact that he can't spell, see how much his message, message resonates with you. Education don't give a man the power of the Spirit. It is grace and gifts that furnish the real live coals from off the altar. St. Peter was a fisherman. Do you think he ever went to Yale College? No, no, beloved brethren and sisters. When the Lord wanted to blow down the walls of Jericho, he didn't take a brass trumpet or a polished French horn. No such thing. He took a, he took a ram's horn. Plain and natural ram's horn, just as it grew. And so when he wants to blow down the walls of the spiritual Jericho, my beloved brethren and sisters, he don't take one of your smooth, polite college larnt, L-A-R-N-T, gentlemen, but a plain, natural ram's horn sort of man like me. Now that is the spirit of the frontier, folks. And that is the spirit of being an independent Baptist fundamental. Extemporaneous preaching. Right? For some of our early Baptist ancestors to have a sermon outline was a sin. Where'd you get your message? God gave it to you. Education was a sin. I'm, <clears throat> I'm pausing here debating whether I should give you one of the most often repeated quotes I heard at Bible college, but I think for the sake of decorum, I will not. <clears throat> But Lorenzo Dow, who is a lightning rod of controversy against the established clergy for that kind of mentality, reflects much of the spirit of Christianity as it was practiced in western New York, Kentucky, Tennessee, and the West. Francis Asbury <clears throat> was a Methodist bishop in America. He was a huge advocate of a phenomenon that we will talk more about next week, and that is the camp meeting. And these camp meetings in the West became huge. In 1806, one camp meeting, and this was in Delaware, lasted for 100 days. Now, we used to have one time, one time, we had a 10-day-long revival. We went Monday through Friday and then we didn't have meetings Saturday, and then we went Sunday through Wednesday, and we were tired. And there was no flood of people at my office saying, can we do that again next year? 
Can you imagine a hundred days of church meetings, of camp meetings? One of these camp meetings conducted by the Methodists and others were welcome to attend. Had 3,000 people attend for a four-day meeting. These were massive events. Now, critics claimed that they were nothing other than emotionally charged meetings led by unqualified ministers. But what makes a qualified minister? What makes a qualified minister? And by the way, folks, that is not an academic question. Those of you that are here Wednesday night need to be giving some serious consideration to what a qualified minister looks like. In 1775, there were almost no Methodists in America. By 1820, there were 250,000, and by 1830, there were 500,000 people who identified as Methodists. And of course, one of the other things that Methodists were famous for was their circuit riding, sending a man out to ride a little bit of a circuit. And it's not accidental, folks, that if you get out into once you get past west of Lincoln, you'll find that much of Nebraska is Methodist in its religious flavor because circuit riding ministry was here. Baptists were another group that were strongly influential in this democratic democratization process of, of handing power, religious power over to common people not just a hierarchy of clergy, not just those who had the right credentials and the right training. Denominationally, and again, I'm not even going to get into the fight that so many want to fight about John the Baptist being a Baptist, and there's always been a Baptist since John the Baptist. As a denomination, they go back to England. England and Germany. They go back to Europe. They were German Baptists. Um, many of them were known as Anabaptists, which is not really a denominational label as much as it is a doctrinal position. So you want to be careful there. Anabaptist really isn't a denomination. Anabaptist is a position. We believe in baptizing people all over again is the idea because no baptism counts until you can profess faith in Christ personally. That was one of the big hallmarks of that. <clears throat> Baptists as a denomination shared their insistence upon congregational church government. This is another thing that we'll be talking about on Wednesdays in the days, in the days to come. Where does authority in an assembly lie? Where does it lie? Who, who, has, who has power and what power do they have? And, and again, make no mistake about this, folks. The discussion of power is an important part of every church's existence. <clears throat> they, of course, as Baptists, insist upon the necessity of baptism after conversion. So this would be one of the places where they would differ from Methodists. But one of the biggest things that the Baptists were known for 
that quite honestly we've lost a little sight of in the fundamental Baptist world is their absolute rejection of any serious connection between the church and the state. Let me quote from you a man by the name of John Leland, L-E-L-A-N-D. John Leland was a leading Baptist in this particular period of history. This is what Leland wrote on behalf of Baptists. The notion of a Christian commonwealth should be exploded forever. Government should protect every man in thinking and speaking freely and see that one does not abuse another. The liberty I contend for is more than toleration. The very idea of toleration is despicable. It supposes that some have a preeminence above the rest to grant indulgence. Whereas all should be equally free, Jews, Turks, pagans, and Christians. That's what Baptists have historically believed about our involvement in government. Not toleration. For toleration by its very definition imposes, it suggests the idea that somebody is superior and that somebody needs to be tolerated but an absolute liberty for all. This was of course what Roger Williams championed and one of the reasons that we love to point out that brief window of time in which he was a Baptist. But as denominations, and now let me just kind of finish up here by talking a little bit more about the Baptist denominational. I've talked about this and we're going to come back to it, folks, because it is an inescapable part of American history. This division and conflict between those who were Calvinistic in their approach and those who were Arminian in their approach. <clears throat> and it flavors the way <clears throat> that you do church. And it flavors the way that you do religion. Baptists tended to divide denominationally along those lines, so that you could find Arminian Baptists and Calvinist Baptists. So we agreed on congregational authority. We agreed on baptism after a profession of faith. We agreed on the relationship between the church and the state. And we disagreed on this matter of Calvinism and Arminianism. So they tended to divide along two lines, and this is kind of how they were historically known. One side was known as regular Baptists. Regular Baptists. And regular Baptists tend to believe and argue that Jesus died equally for everybody. Now again, I'm not looking to fight that fight this morning apart from folks imposing upon you, right? If you, if you wish to take that approach, that Christ died for everybody equally, would you impose any qualification upon that? Because if you just leave it out there as an adamant flat, I believe that Christ died equally for everybody, then you are going to have to put some qualification upon it, or you're going to have to conclude a universal salvation. That if Christ died equally for everybody, then everybody equally will be saved. Because the death of Christ, folks, accomplished something. It's not a theory. This is part of the heart of the conflict. 
The death of Christ did something. It didn't just make something possible. It accomplished something. That's the way the Bible presents it. So, right? A regular, and I'm not saying that a regular Baptist is wrong in doing that. I'm just saying that to go, right? Well, we're regular Baptists. Christ died for everybody. Okay. Well, you've got to think through that, and you've got to be clear in your mind about what you really mean by that. Secondly, there are particular Baptists. These are the two main distinctions. And a particular Baptist argues, no surprise, that Christ died only for the elect. He died for those in particular. And so you could be any one of those two kinds of Baptists. The particular Baptists were sometimes known as irregular Baptists. They were sometimes known as separate Baptists. They were actually sometimes known as hard-shell Baptists. But they were Baptists who believed that Christ died only for the elect. And again, they're looking at the accomplishment of the, the work of the cross. That since it accomplished something, it only accomplished something for those that believe. So it cannot be equal for every man because not every man will believe. And of course, you know that gets very complicated and very emotional. Again, I'm not looking to fight that, to fight that fight today. <clears throat> There were some separate Baptists in Connecticut back in the colonial period. <clears throat> and these separate Baptists, finding no welcome in Connecticut, ultimately went to North Carolina, and they brought Baptist revivalism to the South. Um, and again, if you're inclined to, really, to, to be much interested in Baptist history, here is a name that you should know, Shubal, S-H-U-B-A-L, Stearns. Shubal Stearns. And, and, and in North Carolina then, these Baptists who associate together, right? Baptists associate like everybody else does, and they, they form what is called the Sandy Creek Baptist Association. They are successful enough to make Baptists a powerhouse denomination in the South. And they are, folks. They are. <clears throat> Right, this is just, and, and I don't, the numbers may have changed. This was a number of years ago, right? There is a nationwide, and it's not just Baptist, but it is probably 98% Baptist, right? There is the American Association of Christian Schools. And Christian schools may join the American Association of Christian Schools. It is a nationwide organization. Our Christian school is a member of the American Association of Christian Schools. In the great state of Nebraska that I love dearly, there are three schools, in the Nebraska Association of Christian Schools. In North Carolina, there are 5,000. There are 5,000. So <clears throat> the Baptists have made some real progress in North Carolina over the course of the years. By the 1850s, go back to the lesson and wind this down. By 1850s, there are dozens of Methodist and Baptist denominations because it's just the nature of people, folks. It's the nature of people to go, I like this in general, but I don't like this in particular. And then we go off and we have this in general and this in particular. I like this in general, but I don't like this in particular. And the Baptists will do it, and the Methodists will do it. But by, by, the, time, by the time we're at the eve of America's Civil War, 
two-thirds of America's Protestants are going to identify as either Baptist or Methodist. And they are both very heavily democratic denominations in their perspective. We, we just are, by, by kind of nature, folks, democratic in our perspective. Now, sometimes independent Baptist pastors in particular get criticized for being dictatorial, and that's a whole other issue. But I would argue that in a church that is attempting to operate somewhat biblically and with some dimension of sanity, the church, even the pastor, operates within that sphere of democratic principles. I'm going to talk about this on a Wednesday night if I can kind of close with this, folks. But the New Testament pastor is a unique animal among all of the offices and spokesmen that God has ever had for two reasons. Number one, he holds his office willingly by biblical definition. If any man desires to be a pastor, and Peter will say to us, willingly, not under constraint, we hold this office willingly. That is not true, folks, of any Old Testament prophet. It was never true of the priest, but it is true of the New Testament pastor. Secondly, the New Testament pastor is in some ways in subjection to his own assembly. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, except it be at the hand of two or the mouth of two or three witnesses. But an elder can be called into account by the congregation. In some way, he answers to the congregation. Can you imagine? Well, you can imagine, folks, because all you have to do is go back and read through the major prophets of what it was like when somebody stood up and said to Jeremiah, We're, we, we think you're wrong and we think you're crazy. And God goes, well, I'll show you who's right. But a New Testament pastor is a horse of a completely different color. There is, folks, a democratic principle that belongs to churches, not the hierarchy of the clergy wielding lordship. And in this time, at the close of America's first great awakening, in that period of time until the second great awakening, there is an increasing democratization of mentality among Americans. God called, right? I mean, look, the, the, right? Why are you a pastor? God called me to be a pastor. And did you go to the right schools? I don't need to go to any school, right? God has called me to do this. And, and when people talk like that, we just go, okay. Nobody goes, you know what? We need, we need to put this guy in prison. But there was a time when that happened. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I'm always, I'm happy always to talk to you about these things privately. And we will be back in about 13 minutes.